Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. We're happy to help you have informed conversations with your healthcare providers. But please do not treat anything we say in this or any of our episodes as medical advice. Even when the guests are physicians, they're not your physician. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating, and follow, and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. Today, I'm pleased to be joined all the way from Hawaii um, by R.D. Dykeman. Aloha. Hi, yeah, aloha. Yeah, you got it right. (laughs) Excellent. I've been there once. Um, (laughs) um, So we were just talking about when I first met you and got to listen to you at a low-carb USA presentation. Yeah. And and so if you could just introduce yourself, what is your professional background? Um, And then I'll ask a couple other questions to lead us into what I really want people to hear about. Well, uh, you know, it's, it, it's all sort of connected. It's a weird, it's a weird, uh, it's a weird journey, I guess. Uh, my professional background um, is in particle physics theory. And I used to do that in the nineties uh, with a, a gang of Russian theorists at the university of Minnesota. There's a theoretical physics institute there, which, and I studied with them and um, was working on a topic called quantum chromodynamics, which is a study of the strong nuclear force. So, you know, my background is in, um, in a very hard theoretical sciences. Um, so, you know, uh, that experience, um, when I was finished with it, you can kind of continue with that that research angle and academic angle. And I decided I had an opportunity, uh, you know, I thought in, in trying to go into industry a little more in, in applied physics. And I just decided to do it. And um, I ended up in Hawaii and I work for, uh, it's, you know, it's a long career path, but I end up working as a scientist for a, a large uh, defense contractor. And my field of speciality is in real-time signal processing. Um, so that, yeah, real-time sensor signal processing. So if you have a, a sensor, like you could think of, a, uh, of uh, an easy one to think of, everyone knows of, it's just a, a digital camera or a digital video camera. And it's producing signals on a focal plane array and uh, outputting those digital signals to some kind of processing unit. Um, in fact, you know, it's doing that right now on the Zoom call. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, anyhow, that's, that's uh, you know, that's the, the starting point for which the, the low-carb and dietary stuff starts to um, take center stage. And that's the, the topic of interest here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, sometimes it... <laughs> you know, what do you know? You're not a doctor, right? Kind of thing. And, yeah, yeah. and there, I, I've gotten to meet some very intelligent people who aren't medical people, but they've gotten into some 
branch relating to touching upon medicine or medical practice. And it's good for people to kind of know where we're coming from with our training and our outlook because they can be very different. I mean, I've been joking lately. Um, some, some students go through animal science as a course of study undergraduate, and then they go on to medical school. And my joke is I want to see what happens when someone who's well-trained in animal nutrition <laughs> it gets exposed to what physicians get trained about nutrition for humans. I mean, there, right. there, there's a huge gap there. There's, as you were saying, hard science, data-driven. You know, we're, we're, we're not going to accept um, – what, what, what do we call it when um, – uh, paradoxes. I mean, those aren't acceptable in some disciplines, and yet they're the foundation of others. But but I've sidetracked the conversation. So you moved to Hawaii. When did you start a family? Was that before or after the move? Well, uh, it was a little after the move. And okay. um, so, you know, the, the, the nutrition stories really starts with my son's type one diagnosis. And um, that happened in 2013. So I had been in Hawaii for quite a time before that. And he was nine when that happened. So, um, you know, like, like most everybody, I knew very little about nutrition. Um, the bit that I did know was, you know, sort of from like the Reader's Digest and uh, cholesterol is bad and we should be eating whole grains and sort of a food pyramid approach. So on the one hand, I'm, you know, personally eating the standard American diet, but on the other hand, trying to follow the, the government food pyramid and, you know, trying, if, if I was trying to optimize away from my, the junk I had in my diet to get closer to the kind of uh, grain-based diet that um, the, the government tells us to eat and so uh guess guess what i was i was fat <laughs> i was in really poor shape uh and um kind of feeling like it was sort of the normal way to be um and uh you know i was about uh let's say 40 at that point and i probably weighed maybe 260 pounds at my maximum and um and then, you know, my son got diagnosed with type one and that kind of kicked off this whole uh, uh, situation where um, I had to get what I would say theoretical control of, of what was going on with nutrition and metabolism at a deeper level. Yeah. So just to review type one versus type two for yeah. people who may not be familiar. Yeah, yeah, so type two is its own thing. They're both very complex um, diseases, and um, but we can say that um, you know, type two has its strongest component in, and there may, be an auto, there may even be an autoimmune component to type two, so there's a lot going on but the basic idea is that um, um, you overeat, you overstore what you can eat as far as um, you know your ability to store um, um, you know fat in your adipose 
and um, you become insulin resistant. There's a cascade of inflammation. The, the physiology there is very complicated. You eventually develop hyperglycemia and then the complications of diabetes, both micro and macrovascular, uh, start occurring. So in that sense, the strategy to get out of type two is sort of the reverse of how you got into type two. So you, you stay away from the, the, basically the processed high energy foods, high carb foods from the standard American diet that made you get sick and, and made you get overweight. And um, so you focus on more of a whole foods thing, you lose weight. And then there's lots of people we see now who are reversing their condition. I just looked at Tracy Brown. And, um, she's the ADA, American Diabetes Association uh, CEO. I just saw her uh, um, just yesterday, her blood sugar measurements. She's averaging blood sugar of 80, which is unbelievable uh, metabolic control. And I know that she knows all about low carb and has visited Dr. Bernstein's office. And I know people who eat lunch with her and she's, you know, very, very careful about her carbohydrate intake. And, um, and so that's, that's type two. Now, what about type one? Type one is an autoimmune condition and not, uh, not well understood. Um, we don't know why type one is, um, happening. We don't know why it's increasing, um, but it happens. It, it can hit uh, children in particular. My son got it at the age nine, and that is not an uncommon age. Um, it can also happen to adults and can be confused with type two. And it presents in very similar ways, by the way. Uh, it presents with uh, very high blood sugars. Um, uh, so uh, just the diagnosis of type one and type two and the differentiation. In fact, um, we, we're going to talk about Dr. Bernstein, but Dr. Bernstein doesn't particularly differentiate between type one and type two. He, he treats the blood sugars with low carb diet and then uses medication where he has to, including insulin, which is obviously what you're going to need for type one to get the blood sugars normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, I, but for the sake of this conversation, you know, it, it was my son who had the, the type one. And the type one, unlike the type two, the type two is sort of progressive and it takes decades to develop. The type one can creep up on you and you'll see it in uh, a matter of weeks or days. My son literally went off the metabolic uh, cliff in a couple of weeks. And of course, I didn't know anything about diabetes. You know, I'm, I, I told you what kind of shape I was in. So hmm. um, I didn't know anything about what was happening to him. We didn't know anything. My wife didn't know anything. And my pediatrician didn't know anything either. So she made a misdiagnosis. She gave um, incorrect advice. She did incorrect testing. And um, he almost died, Peter. So it was like major uh, catastrophe. And um, just emotionally, uh, it's been almost 10 years. And I think I've sort of recovered from that shock. But if I really put myself into that uh, moment, um, it was pretty much the most awful thing because uh, I, was, 
I was convinced that my son was going to die. Um, his, his condition was so, so poor. Um, uh, the, the cataclysmic event, uh, which is what, you know, what you, you can always remember a moment like this was when he was so sick and we had seen the pediatrician and she suggested rest and we were watching TV, he was home from school and he was always hungry, which was a puzzle to me because he was so sick, but he was demanding food. That's a classic symptom of type one because they can't process the food, right? So they're, they're just peeing everything out and they're hungry. And he was hungry. So I asked him, what do you want? And he wanted McDonald's. So I said, get some McDonald's, like whatever you want. Like I got to get some food into this kid. And uh, so I got a McDonald's. He took a few bites of it and threw up all over himself. And I said that, you know, I, I was so scared at this point. I said, that's okay. That's okay. We'll get you cleaned up. And I got it. And he said, I can't get up. I just can't get up. And I, I got him on the couch and I lifted him up. And when I lifted him up, if I, I can feel it in my hands. It was like, a, like just bones. I just felt bones. And, you know, you carry your kids a lot. I had, I had another, I had a younger child, he's seven. When you're a dad, you're always carrying your kids when they're little. And I remember when my kids were like three or four and they starting to get heavy, <laughs> you know, and I'm a big guy and your arm would start to hurt after you carry them for too long, you know, like 10 minutes and be like, oh, you can walk yourself. <laughs> and I picked Dave up and he was like light as a feather. He was a nine year old. And I took him into the shower and I helped him get his shirt off and I saw his, his body and it was like a skeleton. And it, that had happened in just days. I had, I, we hadn't noticed. Mm -hmm. And I called my wife and I said, Dave's going to die. We have got to do something. And um, we called the, the, the pediatrician. We got the tests. And then, and then the next day she called us with the results of the test. And she said, you have to get to the emergency room now. Uh, your son's got type 1 diabetes. And it's, you know, we're immediately like, putting clothes in the bag, you know, I like holding the phone, Roxanne, my wife, Dave's got type one diabetes. We've got to go to the hospital right now. And we didn't even know what that was. And so she's telling me like what type one diabetes is. And, but we knew that this was a dire situation. Mm -hmm. So the last part of the story, not to, you know, I'll keep emphasizing how critical the situation, you know, to the hour is because it happens to lots of families. Most families, some people are lucky they catch it early. But when we got to the hospital, we get to the ER and the ER is overfilling. There's people out in the hallway. And I'm thinking to myself, Jesus, we're going to be six hours sitting here. It was packed. There was nowhere to sit. And we went and checked in. And then we just got Dave a chair and we just started standing there. And and the double doors opened and five people came out. And one of them, because it was so crowded and loud, one of them had like a horn, you know, to, and they were like, David Dykeman, David Dykeman, talking through the, the bullhorn. And my wife and I just looked at each other like, holy crap, right? This was like, he just cut in front of the whole line. And uh, it was, I think his blood sugar was, you know, like over a thousand or something like that. So it was, <clears throat> that was the... 
that was the need, the reason because they can have brain edemas and die. And that that's like the whole introduction to the the type one world. Um, oh, wow. You know, um, so it's it, traumatic, man. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. Um, yeah. And I went through a period where two people I hadn't seen for years, I got to see in a very short period of time. One I went to school with, one I worked with very early in my career. And they had both developed type 1 diabetes after a viral infection. And okay. I thought it was kind of interesting that I would run into, because I hadn't been familiar with that before. I mean, right. obviously, they're adults and this happens. So, right. Um, okay. So, yeah. So, you, the, thinking, the thinking there is that the, um, you know, type 1 occurs in stages. So, there's, there's, a, a number of autoimmune attacks that occur. And over those number of attacks, you can develop antibodies. Um, your blood sugar can go up, which is what happened to Dave. We can look back at pictures and see that he didn't look well. Mm. And so he's gradually losing beta cell mass. And we just didn't catch it. So it could have been, it could have been more than a year that he was had detectably high blood sugars. And then what happens with the the virus or the, those kinds of reactions is that um, when you have when you have an illness, you have sort of a counter regulatory hormone reaction. It causes an extra requirement for more insulin to keep your blood sugar level. And if you don't have enough beta cell mass to get you over that hill, the high blood sugars are worsened which are toxic to beta cells. There's more hyper, there's hyperinsulin secretion, which may, may be even more provocative to more uh, autoimmune attacks. And then, then you finally get over the hill and you can't, you can't control your blood sugars anymore. So I'm not, I'm not surprised from the sort of a mechanistic point of view that a lot of the times people have their, their, their last sort of straw in diagnosis is when they get sick. Yeah. Okay. And, and as I, so you've, fortunately, you were close enough. Fortunately, you got care to get through that acute crisis. Yeah. And then you're given information about, okay, you're going to take Dave home and yeah. this is what you're going to do from now on. Yeah. Except... <laughs> Well, it's it's very first. I mean, there's two fun things to talk about. First of all, it is like having a new baby that everyone remembers with that first day when you leave the hospital with that new baby, and and everyone just thinks, "What am I supposed? To, who's here to help me?" You know, you have the nurse who's helping you after you uh, after your, your wife has the child, and then she's helping you know change the first diaper and all that, and then you go home and. <laughs> <laughs> it's learning. It's learning on the job. So there, there is that component of the diagnosis. But then the other common component is you have to uh, have a really high speed um, lesson from doctor or a certified diabetic educator and a dietitian. You meet a team of people, and they they teach you how to treat the diabetes. And treating diabetes is an incredibly difficult, um, if I had to teach you how to take care of Dave, it would take a long time. 
to really, especially because the standards are high with Dave, but even, even without worrying about, um, I mean, you have to know how to, all the mechanics, how to take a finger stick, how to give a shot, how to give a corrective shot, where you can give a shot, which size needle, how to draw insulin out of the vial, all these mechanical things that you have to do um, are brand new. So there's, there's that. And then the more interesting thing for this conversation is the dietary advice. And our, our story is very similar. It's probably 99% of all people are told the same thing. So we have a lesson with our endocrinologist who's great. Um, and he teaches us, he's got an easel and he's teaching us with a Sharpie how to control blood sugar. And he draws it and carbohydrate makes the blood sugar go up and insulin makes the blood sugar go down. And the goal is to give insulin and carbohydrate in the right amount so that blood sugar stay between 70 and 180. Now, those are the ranges that he used. And, uh, and when he was drawing that, and I'll get to the dietitian in a minute, but when he was drawing that, what, what was he drawing? He was drawing a time series and the sensor was the blood sugar blood sugar monitor and i immediately snapped and i said okay i have i have two controls now i have the insulin and i have food and i'm a very smart guy i'm thinking so i know i know i can beat everybody at this game and keep his blood sugar and i and by the way i already knew that there were there, there were consequences and the consequences as explained from the endocrinologist directly today, who's only nine, um, were severe blindness, amputation. Um, I give our endocrinologist a lot of credit for not holding back about what the consequences were. And I think that's because like he, he and my son, they, they went, they, you know, my son goes to the same school as he does. And we kind of know him through like a lot of people in Hawaii, we know him through family, friends and so on. So they, had, they kind of saw eye to eye pretty quickly. So he treated Dave uh, like a mature guy and told him the truth, what, which was that the situation was bad. And the famous thing that Dave said at this point, this is before we met the dietitian. He, Dave said, well, then I just won't eat carbohydrate. True story. And I laughed at him and the endocrinologist laughed at him. We both laughed. Because uh, of course you need carbohydrate, Dave. You need carbohydrate for energy, right? So it's not that simple, Dave. And that was the end of the story. Um, I'll go on. Then, then we met with the dietitian. Um, uh, the dietitian was not uh, herself in particularly good shape, but she seemed to have a, a real strong opinion about what we should be eating, and um, that was a diet that consisted of things like oatmeal, juice, skim milk, uh, low fat meats, um, chicken breast, not chicken thigh. Um, you know the drill, Peter. Uh, it is the standard dietitian advice that they have learned in a textbook and they're giving to all these kids and all these families who are, are wanting the best for their children. And there's no context at all to this uh, nonsense that they're giving. Um, there's no context given to type ones. There's no context given to the, the 
the, the roller coaster blood sugars that these diets are mathematically guaranteed to generate. There's no context given to the damage to the developing child type one brain, which we know exists from the literature due to hyperglycemia or any of the other complications. It is simply a parroting of the low fat nonsense, which has been pushed on the general population and given to type ones who are far more sensitive to carbohydrate. Um, and the result is a catastrophe. It's a life ruining catastrophe where the A1C of the average uh, type one kid is around 8%, which is an average blood sugar of 200, which is almost triple normal and with huge swings all day long. Uh, uh, it's a disaster. So, so somebody explained it this way to me that they, they, they say, or somewhere along the line is the thinking stream that goes, since diabetics are at increased risk for heart disease, true. And since we know that fat in the diet causes heart disease, false, but they combine the two, then they say it must be even more important for diabetics to be on a low fat, therefore high carbohydrate diet, not recognizing the carbohydrate intolerance basically that's right. at play here. It, it's a remarkable... Well, the, the type ones die at five times the rate of heart disease and uh, type one kids die more than 10 years before they should. Um, and uh, so vision and, and, loss, you were saying by late twenties, is that? Yeah, and and the the reason why they're dying is not because they're eating spinach omelets for breakfast. The reason they're dying is is hyperglycemia, and we know uh, this is no secret. This is published in ADA journals. We know that high blood sugars are the number one, uh, the most potent risk factor for heart heart disease in type one diabetics, and it goes by A one C. So there's there's no mystery. It's that the the uh, the the literature is just totally ignored, uh, and this there's just so much inertia to these bad ideas, and they continue to be taught. Um, it's absurd to think that uh, my son, who can throw a football at 17 through a concrete wall, uh, is going to have and runs an A1C of 4.7 okay. is is at worst condition from his, his spinach omelet in the morning than someone who's eating uh, uh, a meal of uh, breakfast cereal, skim milk, and juice, which yeah. is what is uh, advised and running an A1C of 9%. So at, at some point here, you recognize in, in I mean, you're, you're bringing your sort of professional perspective into this, your training. But yep. at the same time, there's just the reality of a parent trying to deal with all this. And so how did how did you find yeah, this is carb? a good how did, story. Yeah. yeah. How did you find low carb? How did you find Dr. Bernstein? Um, yeah. and, and, and how did oh. you get started on, um, the sort of public space of, of, of community creation? Okay. So it's a good story. So I'm going to tell it. So we get home and, um, 
like I told you, I'm convinced I can control these things. I'm a smart guy. And so Dave was in such bad shape, there was no way he was going to go to school anyway, two weeks at least before he, he can barely even walk still. He lost all his muscle mass, but he, he did recover. So he can, he can take a shower and do things like that. So he's, he's autonomous, but he's in no condition of play recess or anything like that. But I, that's, I took two weeks off work and I'm going to start doing my experiments and writing, write every, do a sign. I'm, I got my science lab journal book, right? The graph paper and the, Remember those, right? And yes. I'm writing down, I'm making my oatmeal, recording the macro of the, you know, how many carbs and measuring everything, right? And I'm, and I'm doing my insulin dosing and writing everything down. And then I've got a blood sugar meter so I can measure the effect. So we start doing that. Oh, and he eats the oatmeal. He's going up to two, 280. Okay, so that that that's no good, right? So I got to give him insulin. Now he comes crashing down. And we're doing that for every meal. And I'm telling Dave, be patient for two weeks. I'm going to feed you the same damn thing for two weeks, right? We're going to do cheeseburger. Like, what do you want? Okay, I want to give you oatmeal for breakfast. I insisted burgers at lunch or something like that. I don't remember the, the meals at dinner. But I needed to be consistent to understand what was happening. And... I started making models to predict um, the, the glycemic impact of these foods, right? So real mathematical models and, and trying to understand everything. And my wife would come home after about four or five days, she would come home from work around four and I would say, hey, I think I got it. I think I got it, right? And then um, we'll see tomorrow, but I think I got it. You know, I modified my model. It fit the data from the previous day pretty well. And, it, you know, then I, then I changed the model. Like, what if I'd given insulin 15 minutes earlier? Or what if I'd give insulin 15 minutes earlier and a little bit more an hour and a half later? And the model would predict something. And I would try it. And I'd get close. But then I'd do it again. And it would be crazy. He'd go high as a kite. And then the next time I tried, he would go low. And I, I started to put into my model uh, variability and, and noise terms into my model. And there's, there's something in my work called the Kramer-Rau bound, which is a, a measurement of variance and how, how low the minimum theoretical variance of a certain the statistical estimator. So it's it's just by analogy I'm doing this sort of, but there's a little bit of truth to it too. And I'm trying to figure out what's the minimum variance I'm going to see in this model. And uh, I'm getting that it's a it's a big variance, meaning that uh, you can never predict what's going to happen. The 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 bound is too high. It's too big. Mm -hmm. And my wife, after doing this for a few more days she realized that i was crazy <laughs> and meanwhile dave is uh had it with the oatmeal <laughs> so my my family relationships start to break down a little bit <laughs> and so my wife is doing the smart thing which is googling more than i was and she was on amazon and she googled um and and dave by the way he again with the um uh, why don't we just try low carb why don't we just get rid of the carbohydrate? I'm sick of the oatmeal anyway. Yeah. 
And I think we did that with some eggs once I gave them a break. And of course, everything was much easier. My wife was getting smart to the idea that Dave had put out there. I, I didn't know anything about nutrition or physiology. So I thought there must be a reason why I'm being told to do this. Mm. He, need, he must need something about that stuff, the oatmeal. Uh, and that argument starts to fall apart when you pursue it. But I was still a little convinced. Anyway, my wife Googled, the Bernstein book came up. We bought the book. And on the day that I realized I developed a good metric for this bound, this blood sugar bound, and uh, I wrote an article about it. Um, I went to the mailbox and I got the book out of the mailbox and I flipped open the book as if like God had flipped it open and it flipped open right to the section on the law of small numbers. Okay. And when you read the law of small numbers, as a physicist, right, that phrase gets your attention, right? Because it's like Newton, you know what I mean? It's like, that's a, the first law. There's a law to this. Mm -hmm. And of course I started reading it and Peter, I swear to God, I couldn't walk. I had to sit, I sat down on the step right over here. I, I knew that we had found our way out of this mess mm -hmm. because the Bernstein book had this erudite tone. You cannot get away from it. This person knows what he's talking about. This is a physicist who wrote this book. By the way, he is a physicist. And I learned that later when we were talking to him because he had a general relativity book on his bookshelf. And I started to say, hey, why do you have a general relativity book on your bookshelf? And that's how we became friends, by the way. But anyway, I read that. I, I, I knew we were home free. And I, and I, 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 I that that was the end of the story. We just read the book and uh, we didn't follow the book. Our biggest mistake was we didn't follow the book as close as we should have immediately. Mm -hmm. But we followed it enough that the blood sugars immediately, and I got, I got so many pictures here all over the web, but the blood sugars went from insane to not so bad, right? But we were doing a few things that um, weren't quite right from a technical point of view. And then a few months later of, of learning and experimenting, uh, we got everything in place. And then the blood sugars are perfect. You know, it takes a lot of work. Um, uh, we're constantly looking at blood sugars and managing the blood sugars, but the blood sugars are the same for him as they are for any of his non-diabetic friends. Or maybe better. Or uh, maybe if they're eating a sad diet, they're certainly better. Yeah. Um, I, I, I watched um, a presentation that you gave. And so usually when you use the phrase flatliner, it's not a good thing. But in this case, it's a very good thing. Well, I, people, people say that when I started showing this stuff to people, people would say really stupid things like the only person with a flat CGM trace is someone who's dead. And uh, I mean, I've heard physicians say that. Uh, I said, what are you talking about? You know, and I, of course, as soon as Dave went on the low carb diet, uh, Roxanne and I, have, of course, went on the same diet. I wanted to see what it's like, first of all. Mm -hmm. And I knew that there was something wrong with my diet too, because I was fat. Mm. So we went on the same diet too. And of course we wouldn't 
ask Dave to do anything that we didn't do. So we were all in on that aspect. I wasn't, there's no, there's like Roxanne and I don't go out and have, you know, cupcakes um, in disguise. Uh, Hide the wrappers. No, we don't do that. <laughs> so we're doing the same thing. Yeah. And um, so, you know, of course you start feeling like within a matter of weeks, it's like a new lease on life, right? You don't realize how bad you felt. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I lost all that weight right away. And um, um, so, uh, so, and my from- blood sugars were all flat, Peter. So the, the, here's what's sad. I don't know what my A1C was before. I, I should have been, I should have measured it and it wasn't in my records. But what I do know is that um, if I was pre-diabetic and I can pretty much guarantee you I was, um, by by a sane definition of pre-diabetes, um, you can reverse it. And uh, my blood sugar is never above 100 anymore. Mm, mm. Um, okay, so so this is within a couple months of diagnosis yeah. that yeah. You, you got introduced to at least the book. That's right. Yeah. And and then how long did it take you to like pick up the phone or write an email or get in touch yeah. with the doctor himself? Well, it, there's a couple of things going on at the in the same time period. So one thing I was doing was, um, you know, this is a long time ago. So social media was just sort of kicking off. Yeah. So I was looking for people in social media, other diabetics who were more knowledgeable. And so the first thing you do as a parent is you join a parent's group. And um, that was a pretty terrifying experience because you can see what's happening to people who aren't doing what we were doing. Mm. And um, I think once you choose, so we were, of course, sharing what we were doing. But um, once you're committed to one path or the other, um, if you are, if you see someone who's doing really well with the CGM straight lines, uh, back then, in particular, things had changed a little bit. But back then, um, uh, you know, we were having people call our house and threaten us with CPS and stuff like that. Yeah, because Dave's eating because Dave's eating meat and vegetables and has normal blood sugars. It, it sort of incensed the crazier and very large um, fraction of the online diabetes community. But wow. there was a small group of people who I gradually met. <laughs> who were running A1Cs in the low fives or even fours. And guess what? They were all doing the same damn thing as Dave and Dr. Bernstein, protein foods and veggies and a few of these, um, you know, now there's a lot of them, but, you know, a few of these uh, kind of ketogenic or low carb desserts that are so popular now, um, people were, you know, starting to develop, you know, how do you make a chocolate chip cookie? Oh, you can use almond flour. Mm. Okay. You know, and here's an almond flour pancake you can make. And mm. you start kind of making those things because, you know, it's good for kids, right? Yeah. And so you mentioned A1C. Yeah. And, and yeah. so I'm not sure. I mean, the reality is you're not going to get that from most uh, physical exams unless they see something with the fasting glucose, which I think many people yeah. would now say is inappropriate, it's too late. You, you right. probably missed some things, but right. the the use of A one C in sort of threshold numbers, so yeah. seven and above is well. Okay, here's the thing about A one C. So we know that we now know that for sure cardiovascular disease 
um, which is a macrovascular disease, and the microvascular diseases, like kidney disease and retinopathy and things like that. Those are, um, if you measure elevated blood glucose, those diseases are continuous risk factors of elevated glucose, meaning that as you rise from normal levels, which is around 80, 85, 87, 83, as you rise, those diseases start to kick in. There's no threshold at 140 where you're safe up to 140. Um, the higher they go, the worse you are, but they, the things kick in as, they, as your blood sugars go up. And so there's this, there's this uh, definition. So then, then you can have this measurement called A1C, which is a 90-day average. It measures how much sugar sticks to your blood, red blood cells. And the definition of prediabetes and, and type 2 diabetes are something like 6% for prediabetes and 7% for full-blown diabetes or something like that. So maybe 6.5 or something. But they're, they're too high. They're, the, those, those numbers are arbitrary and they're too high. Um, if you're walking around with an A1C of 5.4%, your blood sugar is elevated. If you're supposed to be, that's, that's a blood sugar of about, I don't know, like 110 or something. So you're 30% on average and above normal. So you, you, yeah, so my opinion is that the guidelines are much too high and that um, uh, your blood sugar should be, let's say your average A1C, your A1C should be below 5.0% and ideally maybe 4.6%. And you're not going to have that if you're walking around eating the standard American diet, because even, even someone who's in, um, seems like they're in good metabolic shape is going to be up and down all the time. Yeah. So yeah. The, the, the difference then between normal in the statistical sense and healthy um, yes. or optimal. Um, yes. Um, so it's, it, so the subtitle of Dr. Bernstein's book um the complete guide to achieving normal blood sugars. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I just had reason to be reviewing, uh, writing a paper for a, a grasslands congress, and and I came across the statement that Western Australian government has apparently some somehow from that body. The statement was made that the goal for type two diabetes ought to be remission, not management. Um, yeah. So that would imply normal blood sugars, not the. Now you know, Bernstein would say that he wants your blood sugar at in the eighties, before, during, and after meals. Hmm. So if you consider, um, let's say prediabetes was at five point seven percent, that's the clinical diagnosis, and you're at say five point six percent. So he wouldn't consider that remission, and his patients aren't there to see him to go for a 5.6%. They want truly normal blood sugars. And that 83, 85 range corresponds to an A1C of around 4.6%. Okay. So when you talk about remission, you know, you're going to have different standards and different thresholds for what, you know, what that really means. Mm -hmm. um, it's I, certainly I, better than managing to seven, which is sort of standard of care and, that's a that's a catastrophe. Yeah, uh, uh, a seven is something like uh, it's something like an average blood sugar of one hundred and seventy. 
And um, you're not just hanging out at 170 all day. Your body's trying to get it down and your food is getting it up. So it, it corresponds to you having these wild fluctuations all day. So it's a, it's seven is grossly diabetic. And to me, 6% is grossly diabetic. And, and even 5.7%, you're going to, if you go to a skilled physician, you, they're going to find diabetic complications. There's over a hundred diabetic complications. They're going to mm-hmm. find something with the person who's walking around with blood sugars like that. Yeah. So, um, so, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to get my mind around parents who are attacking because you're not feeding carbohydrates, but I'm yeah. also wondering about the professionals that you were seeing because I've heard of, I've yeah. heard of people getting fired by their physicians, which just well, is yeah. mind-numbing to me. Yeah, it's uh, you know the the biggest challenge after you learn uh, the truth, which is that these blood sugars can be controlled um, if you eat- by not eating something that's not essential. Okay, yeah. let's just put that in there. <laughs> there's a lot of te- there's a lot of technical details because um, you know even a low carb protein meal. So what did Dave eat for lunch? Let me think. Today we had some leftover chicken that I had made, and he ate a big piece of chicken for lunch. But I had to give him a lot of insulin for that, and that's because, um, and you know this is not known by. Uh, I mean, you won't hear people being told this, but. Uh, amino acids require insulin to be synthesized by the body. So there's this idea that um, um, insulin is all about glucose control. And you're not, you're told, you know, when you're managing your kid, like we were, the carbohydrates make it go up and insulin makes it go down. And Dave said, well, I just won't eat carbohydrate. But the reality is that when you learn Bernstein's book, you have to learn how to use insulin to cover protein foods as well. Um, and that's not because the protein's turning into glucose. That's so that the protein doesn't turn into glucose, and that, that the amino yes. acids are properly metabolized. So there's a lot. Yeah. We just we just went over like really fast a couple of myths yes. that nobody knows about. Yes, yes, and and, and I've watched. I mean, I, again, I colleagues. I've watched them at meetings, and first of all, the the food that we serve each other at our meetings is abysmal. I mean, it's like, shouldn't we practice intermittent fasting instead? Wouldn't that be better? Yeah. Um, but I, it, a gentleman I know is a type one diabetic and he'll read the food label and he'll adjust his pump so he can eat the yeah. bag of whatever as a snack. Yeah. So that's a, there's a, you know, when in my early conversations with Bernstein, which were mostly offline and I should have recorded, but we weren't geared up, uh, he explained that to me why it doesn't work from a physics point of view. And it's really easy to understand. And it's that the, the, the high carb foods like the cereals, he had, a, he had a dye stick. Now a dye stick is, it's a little piece of paper. It looks like a ketone stick. So you ketone stick, you pee on. Dye stick, you pee on too to see if there's sugar in your blood, in your, in your urine. Mm. But you can also take that stick, you don't want to pee on it and then do this. You, you eat some food and then you put the stick in your mouth uh-huh. and then you can see if there's any glucose in the food that you've eaten. Okay, so if you eat some starch, let's say, the starch is a long chain of glucose molecules. Your salivary amylase will break down the starch 
And then you put this dye stick in your mouth and you hold it there for 10 seconds or whatever. And then you pull it out and you watch it, it'll turn black from the glucose. So the starch turns into glucose already in your mouth. So he showed me this trick. Um, and what he's telling you is that the carbohydrate foods like starch and grain and so on, they are rapid. They turn into glucose immediately already before you swallow, begin to, and then they digest rapidly too. Different than like a vegetable, right? Which has very little carb, it's mostly fiber, a whole bag of frozen broccoli is like 20 carbs or something like that. So we're not talking about vegetables. So that blood sugar spike is this really sharp peak that you'll see that the, the amount of glucose in, in, infused in your bloodstream is huge and fast. And so what you want is a rapid acting insulin. And then you want that to work really fast too, because after all, that's what your pancreas would do. The problem is there's no feedback loop. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to match the spike, which can vary around in time and in size with this insulin spike, or it's actually a little valley and you want them to cancel each other, right? And uh, you have to line them up perfectly and then get their amplitudes correct. But if you're off a little, what's gonna happen? You're gonna go down and then you're gonna pop way up. Or if you're off the other way, you're gonna go up and then pop way down, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the worst thing is, which is what I proved with the Dave Oatmeal experience is, these things are subject to sort of the environment and initial conditions. So there's variation of where they are and how, how much effects are gonna happen. And, and something that I've become increasingly interested in from my experience in animal nutrition is feedstuffs and I'm suspecting foodstuffs of plant origin are tremendously variable in their content inherently. Mm -hmm. And so unless you're monitoring each batch, okay, you can find that the table values that you're using for those foods can be off as well. Absolutely. So, so now you not only have this going Never on, but you don't know what's coming in really. And you so don't. it's an impossible situation to control. Right. It's not just, and it, so th there's this idea that you have, and then the, the USDA labeling doesn't require any sort of serious accuracy. Uh, but then there's there's things like your digestion and, and how much exercise, the, all these things, create too much variability. Mm -hmm. So what Bernstein does is he eats a low carb, high protein diet. And the glycemic effects from that are quite slow. It's this, it's this long hump, it takes you about six, eight hours to digest a steak, right? It's not like uh, eating a, a bowl of Rice Krispies. Uh, you, you're gonna be hungry in an hour from this craziness that you want. A steak is a nice, long, digestive thing. Your body stays on a nice homostasis or whatever. And then he matches that with the required insulin, which is an intermediate acting insulin. It's not one of the, the hyper rapid insulins that's used and given to newly diagnosed families and everybody called regular insulin. And you've got now this valley not perfectly meshed up so you contrast what, what's happening with this matching of rapid insulin with the, with the glycemic 
power of a high carb meal with the Bernstein method, which is low carb, high protein. So let's say steak and broccoli. That meal is going to cause a glycemic load, which is quite low. And, and technically, it's really not, aside from the little bit of carbs in, say, broccoli, the glycemic effect from the steak is due to some increased glucagon uh, being provoked from the amino acids. And then that glucagon works on the liver to cause a little bit of potential glycogenolysis unless the requisite insulin is given to stop that process. And that's sort of like what happens with the non-diabetic, except the non-diabetic, the, the alpha cells and the beta cells oppose each other in the pancreas. Here with protein, the glucagon is released and the insulin that's injected works at the site of the liver. So it's kind of an, a miracle that injected insulin works, but okay. It does. So what you do is you use the Bernstein trick, which is to use a slow-acting intermediate insulin, not one of these rapid insulins. And that will cover the steak. And unlike this trying to hit the, the, the needle with a needle situation, you have this big hump from the steak and this shallow hump from the rapid-acting insulin. And it's easy to get them to match up. But even if you're off by a little bit, the deviation is small and you can correct it later with a little bit of extra insulin. Or if you go a little bit low, the lows occur so slowly that with dedicated testing protocol, which is you have to do it as a diabetic, we're always testing, uh, you can give a little bit of glucose. It's not a severe situation. So you remove the highs and you remove the lows uh, by eating what is probably like the optimal species appropriate diet, right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the whole burns. And there's a yeah. lot of other tricks, but that's the main gist of why the low carb yeah. works. It's, it's, it's not an insubstantial yeah. book. It's, it's right. absolutely um, should be handed out with every diagnosis. Um, the, were continuous glucose monitors a thing when you started on this journey? They just started um, getting, uh, they were, they existed, but they weren't very good. Mm -hmm. um, we got one within the year. They just got good when Dave got one and it made, you know, the life, uh, you know, it's a huge, especially at sleep time and so on. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, it makes a huge difference. And then uh, when I started talking to Bernstein, he said a, a good application for the CGM is that you can take a picture of it and share it with your your diabetic friends and social media, and they can see what you're doing. And um, that was yeah. pretty, that was right on the money because you'd start seeing these people that I started meeting this network of people who were, were showing off their abilities. And um, mm -hmm. like I said, they were all doing the exact same thing. Well, and what they, a coincidence. I mean, isn't that remarkable? That, that I mean, yeah. just who could explain that sort of weird sort of alignment of things? Uh, sarcastic yeah um so being the physics yeah well and okay so type one grit is this yeah. community of parents or patients who have type one diabetes who are learning how, essentially they're going down the track that you and many others have yeah out of that you were able to document um 
is sort of the success of a number of people. Could you just kind of yeah yeah um, so that, those people sort of um, that I'm talking about? We all sort of got together and said, you know, it, 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 we started talking about how we were controlling blood sugars and sharing tips because uh, like you showed the book is big, but um, it still doesn't cover all the little details, right? And, um, you know, there's a support aspect to it too. And um, we would meet people and bring them into our chat room. And finally we said, well, we need a whole group of people. And it was really, it was not really a learning group. It's people who are sort of uh, advanced and, um, you know, there's other groups that are experimenting with low carb, but this was sort of for, uh, I would say people who read the book, let's say that, that was like the, the hurdle to, and, and we're, you know, dedicated to, um, you know, trying out the method or working within the method. And um, so uh, the group grew and, um, you know, people are really passionate. Once you learn how to, the, the disease is a nightmare. And once you learn how to control it, you want to help other people. It's universal. So if you feel bad about the world, right, watch some of these type one families or people who've learned to control their blood sugar and watch how eager they are to help other people because it would make you feel good about the world again. Yeah, and then you can imagine what it would be like for someone who's not living in a high-income country who has a child that develops. Well, this is a whole bigger problem because then you have an insulin insecurity issue and uh, food insecurity. So, uh, yeah. you know, that that is, uh, that is you know, there, there's, there. I know communities working on those kinds of issues too. That is a disastrous problem. Uh, problem and, and it's very sad i mean um so well we and it's it these are things that we should be striving to work on i mean I, I i hear things that people are proposing utopians it's like this this is something that we can do today yeah. it takes effort it takes resources but we're not talking about anything that's really requiring some great leap in technology or anything it's it's, it's doable in the fact you know so okay sorry um but i digest as a friend says um so one more thing from a presentation that again i just listened to yeah. and you said that there's information coming to light now about something called double diabetes and yeah. in young people yeah so first of all, what's double diabetes? Okay, so yeah, so so I'll, I'll I'll kill two birds with one stone and tell you what happened with the type one grit group, and then I'll tell you about the the, the oh. double diabetes stuff. The the type one grit group um, grew to the size where um, uh, there was a physician in the group who actually became a uh, author of a co-author of the paper that we wrote which appeared in pediatrics and there was coverage in the New York Times. And uh, she was connected to other researchers. And so there were some researchers from Harvard, including David Ludwig and Belinda Lenners and Bernstein. And I was brought on board and we all did uh, a, a survey for the group that involved contacting physicians and getting the uh, metabolic data, including blood sugars that were um, and cholesterol levels and so on that were measured. And the result was unprecedented. 
um, unprecedented glycemic control offered by low carb. The group had uh, those who um, gave medical records, the average A1C was about 5.57. And this is like, there's no such, there's no people walking around. And there's people that were, were less than 5.0. There's nobody. And then um, they were just learned from the book. No one's walking around with type one with, with blood sugars like that, especially back then. And um, um, we also learned a few other things which are interesting in that paper, which don't get as much attention. And one of them that we learned was that the, uh, there was a remarkable cholesterol lipid ratio that was attained by people. It trigged to HDL, which you know is very important for cardiovascular health. And I said earlier, there's a paper that showed A1C is the number one most potent risk factor for type ones. Trigs are number two, and the trig HDL ratio is, is, is certainly equivalent to the trig number in an absolute sense. And that number was around one, and that's a great number. So that indicates excellent cardiovascular, cardiometabolic health. Third, uh, besides the remarkable A1C and the cholesterol loss levels was the BMI was normal. Now, why does that matter? It matters because what we see now in the type one data is that BMIs are increasing. Obesity in type one adolescence is, it outpaces that of non-diabetics where it is already at an epidemic level. So this is referred to now as double diabetes where you have to use exogenous injected insulin to control your blood sugar. And you have to use a ton of it because you're insulin resistant from obesity. And that is the, that is the common state, so common that if you talk to a practicing endocrinologist, they might confide in you now and tell you that they can't tell if the kids that they're seeing are type one or type two or both. So it's a real big problem. It's more evidence that what's being done to children, type one children, is a disaster. Um, and the information that they're being, being given is a disaster. It's also reflective of how awful the, the, the diet uh, um, situation in our country and everywhere is in general. Um, and that's, that's uh, so you have this, on the one hand, this incredible success story of people who have gone out and demonstrated this uh, remarkable situation. Um, uh, and and then on the other hand, the the, the kids in, that are following the mainstream uh, advice are just doing so poorly. Um, there was a study that just showed that from 2012 to 2018, despite all the increases in the CGM technology and the new insulins, A1Cs are rising even higher with the type one kids. That also is being accompanied with the, the BMI situation, the BMI increase. So it's a disastrous situation. Okay. Um, neither of us are medical people. And obviously, we everyone has to have medical care team. I mean, this nobody's giving medical advice. Yeah. However, I, I think the case has to be made that it's very hard to have an informed conversation with your medical 
team if you don't have all the information, uh, if one or both of you don't have all the information. And so this is very much about getting people introduced to information, getting people introduced, as you said, to people who have the experience. It's one thing to speak from a knowledge base based on my training. It's an entirely different one to talk to somebody who's gone through it, uh, is going through it. So tell us, please, about, is it, I, I've lost my note now, uh, Diabetes University. Yeah, yeah. So um, Dr. Bernstein has his own practice. And um, his, his, you know, patient experience is not the usual experience where you see your endocrinologist for uh, 15 minutes and then uh, that's the end of the story uh, for, you know, the next six months. You see him for a week from eight to five. He sees one patient for a week. So that it consists of a full day of physical exam and then training around uh, how to manage blood sugars using insulin and so on and so on and so on. So maybe three, three and a half days of, of full. And you leave his office with the knowledge of how to care for your diabetes for the rest of your life. What's the problem there? The problem is, the problem is he's not going to be able to, uh, you know, see a, a lot of patients. So he wrote the book so that he could spread that uh, message. And then when I talked to him, we said, well, let's make some videos because they'll, they'll be helpful in social media. And um, so we've made over, you know, 150 videos. My goal with him is <clears throat> he's 87 and he's not slowing down. But there's an Einstein-like quality to Bernstein, which um, it, it requires someone to record the thoughts. This is a man who's uh, a, a real genius. Um, from an IQ point of view, but the knowledge that he has, he's worked in diabetic, diabetic wound clinics for decades and um, he's read, he reads insatiably. So he knows things, uh, I'm still learning things from him. It, it's just, uh, he's a force. So there's gotta be somebody who records um, before he retires. Well, he's never gonna retire, right? So. He's, he's too dedicated, but mm -hmm. uh, he but as you say, he's eighty seven. When was he diagnosed with type one 12. diabetes? Yeah, twelve. At twelve, and, yeah, and uh, he followed the he followed the, the advice too until the first uh, blood sugar meter was was introduced, and he 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 basically figured out how to finagle a, uh, a device. It's about the size of an old VCR, mm -hmm. and uh, he figured out how to control his blood sugars with food and insulin. As, um, I, as I recall, the, the use case for that was for after hours use in emergency rooms so that you could yeah. differentiate between comatose alcoholics That's and right. hypo yeah. diabetics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they didn't want to give it to personal diabetics because then the doctors would lose their business because they they wouldn't they would get the, the diabetics to come in and take a blood sugar every six months. Yeah, they yeah. thought if they have their machines, there's no reason to come. And that's, and, the, that's the Bernstein story, anyway. And you know? and he wasn't a physician at the time that he sorted all this out. And when he took his data yeah. to the physicians, mm -hmm. he was of course welcomed with open arms and and congratulations on his discoveries and was encouraged to do this work in the sphere of medicine. No, um, yeah. He was he was ridiculed 
uh, in his in his 40s, and so determined that he uh, dropped his engineering career and went to medical school to get his initial papers published. And um, you know, think yeah. about taking a, an exam in your. I mean, I met him when I was when he was the same age. When I was the same age that he was, I couldn't have thought about going to medical school. But um, mm. he is the dogged guy, and uh, he 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 made it happen. And his pediatrics paper that he was a co-author on that was published, uh, it validated his life's work. And um, you can see some videos where people are thanking him and. Uh, Mm. there's gratitude all around this this is was hard to find people in 2013 um now you can see the flat lines all over the place um there's still an ocean of misinformation out there and there's a lot of people that are suffering but there's also a lot more people who understand his methods and are having the success that you pretty much see it in every case, these the blood sugars get normal and it's like a new lease on life. It feels awful to walk around with high blood sugars all the time. So to to kind of get it towards a close, Dave yeah. is now 16. Dave is 17. 17. Yeah. yeah. So uh he's a senior, is that he's a junior. Junior. Yep. He's um he's a football player and a basketball player. Um, he's six foot one and 175 pounds. And um, he has been lecturing. He gave a lecture to Harvard. Uh, yeah, on, on Zoom. He's giving a talk at uh, an Israeli conference about how he manages his blood sugars. Um, and uh, you know, he's been working as Bernstein's intern doing the videos for years now, as, as has his little brother. So it's like a family project for all of us because I want him to learn and, and listen to these things. Yeah. And um, yeah. yeah, he's, he's I, like, I, like I said, you know, once you, once you figure out um, how to do these things, you want to help other people mm -hmm. because, um, um, and Dave's, Dave's, you know, even though he's in his own little teen world and wants to be with his friends and stuff like that he still recognizes the importance of his voice he writes for an online magazine mm -hmm. so he's you know he's really just as passionate as as all the low carbers have been that i've i've met they they want to help other people absolutely yeah. so the the story that i mentioned i tell you briefly is i was giving a presentation at a grazing and soil health conference up in um, Alberta. And it just so happened by coincidence that um, two of the leaders of this organization um, were sitting with me at, you know, the poobah table. Um, and and uh, it turns out that both of them had grandchildren who were just diagnosed. And they were both saying what a challenge and a burden it has placed on their children and their yeah. and their children's families and i said have you ever heard of dr bernstein and the answer was no and yeah. so i you know opened up my laptop and banged out an email to both of them there and then with links to everything i could think to put them into touch and I have it in my mind 
to to put a a, a, a quick link to this so that they can see this. Oh, good. Um, uh, yeah. Um, so oh, that that's that bit, and I know that they're not unique. Like you know that they're not unique. You yeah. you've, you've mentioned that. So, uh, Artie, it's really good to talk with you. I I, um, I appreciate your time. Thank you uh, for your sharing. Thank you for all you're doing, uh, have been doing. Um, uh, you'll forgive me for the line that I remember most powerfully from your presentation for me was after you had recited all of the known harms that come to type 1 diabetics under standard of care, you simply said, not on my watch. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. And, 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 and what parent wouldn't feel that if they had the information, right? Yeah. And so uh, getting them the information then becomes paramount and all that. So um, thank you. I've asked you a lot of questions. It's only fair to open myself up if you have any that you want to ask me. Um, <clears throat> Well, I don't know. That's fine. No is a complete and perfectly acceptable answer. Well, I'm so inwardly focused right now. Uh, that's a challenge. How about we'll, we'll I'll get my list and we'll switch roles. I'll, I'll interview you for your Anytime. podcast. Anytime. Yeah. Just let me know. Um, I can't imagine what I could do to help you, but I'm happy to do whatever I can. Okay. Sounds good.